Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Elders, past and present. It's just after one in the afternoon on Tuesday the 14th of October 1919 and it's hot and sultry at Grafton in northern New South Wales. In this infernal heat, middle-aged couple Harry and Agnes Long are about to cross the river. The River Clarence, that is. Mr and Mrs Long are in their sulky, which he guides onto the punt that carries people and horse-drawn and motorised vehicles from Grafton to South Grafton. There's no need to pay the ferryman, for this essential service is funded by the local shire councils. So, Henry and Agnes settle back. They're on their way home now. Home is a property at Sealands, 11 miles north, where they raise their two children and work as share farmers. Once a week, Mr and Mrs Long take the sulky to Grafton to shop and to conduct their business. Usually, they follow the same routine. In the morning, they go via the south bank of the Clarence River to South Grafton and take this punt across to Grafton. Then, in the afternoon, they return up the north bank and cross the river to Sealands via the Whiteman punt that's closer to home. Today, they've broken that routine. After saying goodbye to their children this morning, they took the sulky across on the Whiteman punt and came down the north side to Grafton. Now, the day's business done, they're on the punt to South Grafton. And soon, they'll be heading home on the South Bank. Henry Long is 35. Agnes Long is 38. As individuals and as a couple, they've made a lot of decisions in their lives, large and small, conscious and unconscious, that have led them to this moment. The punt arrives at South Grafton. Henry urges his horse onto the road. The sulky's moving again, minute by minute in this blasted heat. Minutes that can be broken into seconds. Seconds that can be broken into deciseconds, that is, tenths of a second, and centiseconds, hundreds of a second, and milliseconds, thousandths of a second, and on and on, ever smaller, into the infinitesimal. No man in his right mind would make a horse do much more than walk in this weather. So, likely, the sulky travels on Ryan Street parallel to the Clarence River at around 5 miles per hour. To use the metrics favoured by the physicists, that's about 133 metres a minute, 2.2 metres per second, 22 centimetres every tenth of a second, 
2.2 centimeters every 100th of a second, or 22 millimeters every 1,000th of a second. The district's been waiting on real rain for months now. Thunderstorms threaten, but they just won't materialize. And there's no prospect of it being any different for the rest of today. Not a cloud worthy of the name in the sky above. But all that matters now is time and space. Trajectory. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the Forgotten Australia episode, Bolts from the Blue. Making this podcast means I'm always examining thousands of tiny details and considering them in chronological order to understand cause and effect, or at least to try to understand it. Our lives, of course, are chains of choices that lead to changes in our circumstances. Then there's chance. Something that was made possible by your choices and the changes in your circumstances, but something you didn't predict. If you choose to go to a fete, buy a ticket for the chocolate wheel and win a chicken, it's chance. What are the chances? If there are 52 numbers on said chocolate wheel, then the answer's easy, 52 to 1. It's a nice surprise, but you knew it was possible. Not so with coincidence. This is where there's no apparent causal relationship. Imagine, for instance, walking by that same fete and finding a ticket on the ground just as that winning number is called out. That night, as you're eating your chicken, you'll be asking, what are the chances? And chances are, you'd dine out on that story for the rest of your life. Coincidence is where the outcome is striking enough for you to notice and to find meaning. Maybe it's thinking about an old song that you really love, only for it to play on the radio minutes later. Or when you decide you really have to catch up with that friend you haven't spoken to in ages, and the phone rings and they're on the other end. What are the chances? Some coincidences really boggle the mind. If you'll indulge me, I'll give you one from my life. From 2011 to 2013, I wrote a trilogy of dystopian fiction for young adults. The books, which are called The Last Girl, The Last Shot and The Last Place, were published from 2013 to 2015. The series tells the story of a global telepathic apocalypse, though it's set entirely in Australia and from the perspective of a teenage girl. Long story short, she and her ragtag group of survivors have to battle some very evil dudes and deal with the prospect that much of the Australian landscape will be engulfed in uncontrollable fires. In book three, they figure that the only place that might be safe from telepathic overload and from massive wildfires is Lord Howe Island. The main character feels a kinship with the place, even though she's never been there. But she knows enough to know that her mother's driveway was lined with the famous Kentia palms that come from Lord Howe. Spoiler alert, at the end of the trilogy, having survived a bloodthirsty battle and with fires at their heels, the heroine and her friends commandeer an old boat and they chart a course from Port Macquarie to Lord Howe. I did a lot of research on all of the locations in the trilogy. So I spent weeks walking around Parramatta, Penrith, Port Macquarie and other places that don't start with P. I had planned to go to Lord Howe Island so I could convincingly write about it. That would almost certainly have led me to the door of Daphne Nichols, the author of the book Lord Howe Island Rising. But instead, I thought that a better ending might be just to leave it open. Let it play in the imagination whether they make it and find their salvation. The last place was published in March 2015. As many of you know, just three years later, May 2018, I found my biological family and discovered that my people were Lord Howe Island's pioneers in the early 1840s and have lived there ever since. As I discovered, Daphne Nichols, who's my mother, really does have a grove of Kentia palms at the end of her driveway, our family in the late 1800s having been instrumental in turning them into an industry. I was born in Sydney, adopted when I was a few weeks old, never told anything about my biological family, and I'd never been to Lord Howe or given it much thought until I wrote the trilogy. Then it became the key to the thousand-page-plus story. And it gets just a little weirder. From late 2011 to mid-2012, during the period I was writing the books, my day job was as writer on MasterChef. 
What I didn't know was that one of my colleagues, who I worked with pretty closely most days, was family. She was, and is, married to one of my full biological brothers. So, what are the chances? Was it meant to be? What we think of as fate? Was it God or the universe playing dice? I don't know. It was, at the very least, a happy accident. Of course, on the flip side, there can also be unhappy accidents. Freakish things. Like they say, when your number's up, your number's up. Thought of like that, as though life is a giant chocolate wheel, the high odds example that springs to mind is, of course, being killed by lightning. A University of Western Australia fact sheet tells us that 5 to 10 people per year die this way in Australia. Given Australia's population is around 25 million, and without factoring in other things such as age, location and occupation, we can say roughly that the chance of any of us being killed by a bolt from the blue in any given year is between 1 in 2.5 million and 1 in 5 million. It's not really something to lose sleep over particularly if you stay inside during electrical storms. But it does happen. The events in this episode are far, far rarer. This episode started out only being the story of Harry and Agnes Long. Who they were, where they were, how it happened. It's still primarily about them. But as I was researching, I decided to fold in just a little about our former Prime Minister, Dr Earl Page. Like most Australians, I didn't know much about him and I'm still no expert. The reason I included Dr. Page was because he was all over Grafton newspapers in 1919, for reasons that will become clear. As I learned a bit more, he seemed relevant in another way as well. He'd survived a couple of freakish occurrences. Then, when I was well into the writing, I came across another fact that kind of blew my mind. A coincidence when writing an episode about coincidences. What are the chances? Grafton, on the Clarence River, is 610 kilometres, or 380 miles, north of Sydney. This land was, since the beginning of memory, the traditional home of the Bunjalung and Gumbangir people. In 1843, it was officially estimated that the indigenous population of the Clarence and Richmond River area was 2,000. First, the white settlers came for the red cedars. This timber was so valuable, it was called red gold. The resulting cleared land, with its rich soil, was then prized by pastoralists. This colonisation was not a peaceful process. While many of us have heard of the 1838 Mile Creek Massacre of Aboriginal people, for which seven white men were hanged, one of its horrific sequels is far less known. This mass murder was committed at Kangaroo Creek, 20 miles south of the place that would become Grafton. A settler named Thomas Coots was having problems with the local indigenous people. He claimed that they had, over the past few years, killed a lot of his sheep and cattle. They had, he also said, murdered two of his men and a boy. When he got no satisfaction from the authorities, Mr. Coots's solution was, in November 1847, to make a gift to the traditional owners of the land on which he lived, 10 pounds of flour that he'd poisoned. At least 23 Indigenous people died in agony. Mr. Coots was charged and he would face court in Sydney. But the law did not allow Indigenous people to give legal evidence. To be clear, the survivor stories were not disputed. As one parliamentarian would later put it, quote, there could be no moral doubt about what they said of the Kangaroo Creek Massacre. But Aboriginal voices could not be heard in court. So in May 1848, the case against Mr. Coots for mass murder was dismissed for lack of sufficient evidence. He walked free. According to records at Ancestry.com.au, Josiah Long was born in Hertfordshire in England in 1828. He came to New South Wales on the ship Victory in 1855. Josiah headed north to the town that would come to be known as Grafton, but which was then called The Settlement. Josiah worked as a timber cutter and as a carpenter. There's no evidence he was responsible for frontier war violence. 
but he would, in his later years, talk about twice surviving close calls with Aboriginal people. In March 1858, Josiah bought a half-acre allotment for £5.10. and shillings. Then, on the 21st of December 1858, as the Sydney Morning Herald reported, he bought another 44 acres for £88. The next day, the people of the district of Grafton, which then had a white population of 1,000, gathered to petition the New South Wales colonial government to incorporate the town. Schoolmaster Mr James Page, grandfather to our future Prime Minister Dr Earl Page, read and explained the bill to those present. When Grafton's first municipal elections were held in August 1859, James Page would become the first town clerk. Josiah Long married Caroline Ryder in Grafton that same year. She'd emigrated from Germany with her parents and they'd already lived in the district for years. Josiah built himself and his wife a house on his original allotment and he and Caroline would live their entire married lives there, still using the original kitchen with its huge fireplace for burning large logs some 60 years later. As a carpenter, Josiah also built a lot of the district. He was said to have worked on buildings in every town on the Clarence, from Yamba to Cotmanhurst. Josiah didn't just build the place, he helped to populate it, though in this regard, Caroline did more of the hard work. While he was 31 when they married, she'd only been 18. She'd have their first child in 1861, and they'd just keep on coming. Life on the river had its difficulties. One of these was simply getting across it. Wagons had to be floated on rafts made of airtight casks, while bullocks were made to swim from shore to shore. That was tough, but what was tougher was when the river came to you. Josiah saw his first flood on the Clarence in 1857, then 1863, 1870, 1889, a really big one in 1890, and another in 1893. In 1881, seemingly a non-flood year, Henry Long was born. Known as Harry, he was Caroline's 10th child. By the time he was born, Josiah was 55. Despite his age, the old goat would sire one more baby before he was done. Henry Long married a woman named Agnes Helt on Christmas Eve 1906. Like Henry, she was Grafton born and bred, her father also from Germany, her mother from Scotland. Henry and Agnes had their first child, son Arthur, in 1907, and daughter Frieda came along in 1909. Despite being from respective pioneer families, Harry and Agnes were not wealthy. They were share farmers at Sealand, 11 miles north of Grafton. They owned their household furniture, some cattle, and they also had an allotment of land that was valued at £40. A photo of Harry and Agnes in their early married life shows an attractive young couple. But in a later family portrait that seemingly was taken around the end of the Great War, they look tired and worn. In this picture, their children, Arthur and Frieda, also had thin, worried faces like their parents. But the kids did look happier in other photos, where Frieda wore a nice hat and fed a calf, and barefoot Arthur sat atop his pony. These three images were found at a public family tree at Ancestry. Our future Prime Minister, Earl Page, was born in August 1880 in Grafton. His parents gave him two unusual middle names. The first was Christmas. The second was Grafton. While Earl's grandfather had been town clerk, his father Charles would briefly be Grafton's mayor but Earl was destined for bigger things. An incredibly bright lad, he entered Sydney University at the age of 15 and he graduated with a medical degree at the age of 21. In 1902, he was working as a doctor at Sydney's Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. In August that year, he was on duty when a Redfern police constable was brought in. This officer had been shot four times and he was quite dead. Young Dr. Page had to give evidence about this crime and also about being present at the post-mortem. In the next few months, Earl Page was almost news himself. Conducting a post-mortem, the doctor had accidentally cut himself, leading to an infection that was so bad it nearly killed him. 
a radical surgical procedure involving 40 incisions was said to have saved his life. While he was recovering, he was tended to by a nurse named Ethel Blunt. Him nearly dying had introduced him to his future wife. Right after this close call, at the end of 1902, young Dr. Earl Page returned to Grafton to become a partner in a medical practice. There, he had another close call. The Richmond River Herald and Northern District's advertiser reported on the 24th of April, 1903, quote, Dr. Earl Page had a narrow escape from serious injury at Grafton last week. He, with his groom, were thrown completely out of the vehicle in which they were driving, consequently upon a collision with a tree guard. Coming so soon after his other near-death experience, he might have wondered whether someone up there was looking out for him. Earl Page married Ethel Blunt in 1906. They'd have their first child, daughter Mary, in 1909, and then a son, Earl Jr., in 1911. There'd be three more sons, Donald, Ivan, and Douglas. Like his forebears, Dr. Page was civic-minded. He was elected as an alderman, and he became the inaugural president of the North Coast Development League. But he didn't have small-town ambitions for his small town. Quite the contrary. Dr. Page would have two great and enduring dreams. First, he wanted to electrify the district. In the years before the Great War, most people in the Northern Rivers lived without power. Electrification was limited to the towns. During his international travels, Dr. Page had seen massive hydroelectric plants. He wanted a scheme like this for the Clarence, something that would bring cheap electricity to everybody while also making the district an industrial and economic powerhouse. Or more of a powerhouse. Dr. Page already believed that the Northern Rivers were so distinct and so rich and so powerful that they should be their own state, Australia's seventh. He wanted the area to secede via referendum. The Great War put the brakes on such lofty ambitions. Dr. Page enlisted and served for about nine months in the medical corps. His younger brother William, who was also a doctor, also signed up. Earl Page returned to Grafton in 1917 and the following year was elected Mayor of South Grafton. By then, he was also part owner of Grafton's Daily Examiner newspaper. In January 1919, Josiah Long died at the ripe old age of 90. The examiner ran a lengthy obituary headlined, Passing of a Pioneer, Early Days on the Clarence. A few weeks later, as Dr. Earl Page was presiding at a function for returned original Anzacs, a Red Cross circular was doing the rounds, warning of the coming of the Spanish flu. Though it was already hitting Melbourne and Sydney, the flu wouldn't reach Grafton until the end of May, with Dr. Page, a member of the committee, figuring out the best way to deal with it. Within a week, cases were surging, and Dr. Page was urging the committee to make provisions to use Grafton Primary School as a temporary hospital. But by late September, the flu had almost run its course. Yet Dr. Page must have had a scare when his wife Ethel contracted a case so bad it put her into Grafton Hospital. She recovered, and October 1919 was filled with promise. The Spanish flu had almost burned itself out and the League of Nations was putting the finishing touches on the new world order that would guarantee peace after the Great War. Prime Minister Billy Hughes would be heading home soon and straight into a federal election in just eight weeks to capitalise on his status as a great statesman. This election would also be the first in Australia where there'd be a preferential voting system. But there was to be another seismic shift there was to be an alternative between Labor and the Nationalists. The Farmers and Settlers Association and the Graziers Association had just allied with the People's Party of Soldiers and Citizens. This alliance was so new they didn't yet have a platform. But someone else did, and this was Dr Earl Page. He declared he was going to stand as an independent for the seat of Cowper. For such a man of vision and energy, the sky was the limit. Australian politics would never be the same. And more than 100 years later, the ripple effects are still being felt. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. We don't know why Harry and Agnes Long changed their usual route on Tuesday, the 14th of October, 1919. Maybe it was as simple as the weather. Yesterday had been a stinker, the hottest and most unpleasant day of the present season, and today was barely any better. So perhaps they changed things up in the hope of catching a breeze. Grafton and South Grafton municipalities then had a combined population of around 5,800 people, enough to support a bustling town. As Henry and Agnes took their sulky along Prince Street, there was plenty to see. There was Clem Musgrove's menswear store, and he was offering the new season suits. WF Bloods had plenty of showroom value for the ladies, with skirts, blouses, camisoles and bathing costumes. Ed Francis, footwear specialist, had a thoroughly comprehensive stock of white shoes for the summer. Meanwhile, McKittrick's had you covered for Panama hats, boaters and cricketing caps. The Theatre Royal had just reopened after renovations and alterations, and at the weekend had celebrated by showing Fatty Arbuckle's new movie, Butcher's Boy. There were two other cinemas in town besides. Mr. Bailehash's motor service station, garage and rubber works also dealt Buicks because he was the local agent. But if you're after a Ford, like Mr. Winston Churchill, who'd recently ditched his Rolls Royce for this cheaper, universal car, then you had to go to the city motor garage. We don't know what Harry and Agnes Long were in town to buy. It wasn't a Buick or a Ford. And likely, it wasn't a Panama hat or some white shoes for the summer. Most probably, it was Staples, Lipton's Tea, or PB Licks for the cows. After they'd done what they came to do in Grafton, Harry and Agnes visited with one of his brothers. They left this sibling's house at 12.50, giving them enough time to make the one o'clock punt across to South Grafton. As the punt left, further up the north bank, the SS Tinton Bar was berthed at the North Coast Company's coal wharf. The ship's crew were then breaking for lunch. Tinton Bar was a single-screw steamship that had been built in 1908 in Glasgow. It had worked the North Coast route for years now, and the master, the captain, was Sidney Hannaford Drew. He'd been born in Devon in England in 1883, so he was 35, just like Harry Long. During the Great War, Tinton Bar, like other ships plying the coastal route, had been at the risk of enemy mines. Thankfully, that threat had now passed, but the captain and his ship still had their defences in place. Somewhere between 1.30 and 1.45, Harry and Agnes Long passed through South Grafton. They were on Ryan Street, near the house of the horse trainer John Murphy. Actually, significantly, they were just off the road, driving the sulky on uneven ground, so that the vehicle was considerably canted to one side. Then, abruptly, Agnes was falling from the sulky to the ground. Henry was toppling too, just a second later, and as he fell, he jerked the reins, which sent the horse wheeling about. Then, the sound arrived. A crack-crack. A ten-year-old boy saw all of this happen in the space of mere seconds. John Murphy, who was on his veranda, heard the noises, and he went to look down the road. A man and a woman were on the grass, and their horse was running back along Ryan Street to South Grafton. John Murphy rushed to the scene. The woman was alive, but she'd be dead in seconds. Her husband was only a few minutes behind her. Neither were able to say anything. Dr. William Page, six years younger than his famous brother Earl, was summoned. He rushed to the scene, but as he got there, the husband died. A constable from South Grafton arrived, and he alerted Sergeant Swan of Grafton Station. It was clear to everybody that this man and woman, well known around the district, had both been shot. Witnesses had heard that crack crack. 
One shot had been loud, the other one a bit softer. Agnes, who'd fallen first, had been hit near the right breast, but there was no exit wound. Harry had been killed by a through-and-through bullet to the neck. Who'd shot these two inoffensive people who were just going home after doing their shopping and business? They didn't have any enemies, and it was clear they hadn't been robbed. The boys said no one else had been around. After the bodies had been formally inspected by Dr Henry, the government medical officer, they were taken to the morgue at Grafton, where he conducted a post-mortem examination. Meanwhile, Sergeant Swan had been told by locals that the shots, which had sounded quite distant, might have come from the ship the Tinton Bar. Boarding the ship, Sergeant Swan spoke with Captain Sidney Hannaford Drew. The officer said, There was some shooting going on here before dinner. The captain replied, Somebody had little to do. They've got a big mouth. Sergeant Swan pressed, It has been reported that some shooting went on here. Did you fire any shots? Captain Drew said, Yes, I had a couple of shots at some shags. Birds out on the river. A few other men, he said, had shot also. Sergeant Swan wanted to know what sort of gun had he used. A rifle, the captain said. Sergeant Swan replied, Show it to me. At the morgue, Dr. Henry performed the post-mortems. As suspected, there was no bullet in Henry, though its spine-fracturing trajectory through his neck was traceable. But a bullet was recovered from Agnes. It was a 303, and it had passed through her heart and her left lung before lodging against the chest wall. Its trajectory through her body was also clear. On the Tinton Bar, Captain Drew handed over a 303 Army Service Lee Enfield, a repeating rifle that was sighted to 400 yards, yet it could be sighted through to 1,800 yards. Captain Drew also handed over three packets of cartridges. He told Sergeant Swan, quote, That rifle and ammunition were supplied to me by the Naval Department for the purpose of sinking any mines that I might come across. The captain and the sergeant were standing on the bridge near a cabin door. The police officer said, Show me the direction in which you fired the shots and where the bird was that you fired at. Captain Drew pointed towards the sand spit on Susan Island, in the middle of the Clarence. I shot at one over there, he said. Then he pointed below the sand spit at the water, and one over there. Captain Drew had missed both times. He said his shots had hit the water. But Sergeant Swan believed he was pointing in a direct line to where the bodies had been found on the other side of the river. Two people were dead. The captain had fired twice. Witnesses had heard two shots. Yet it made no sense. Unless Captain Drew was a maniac, which he didn't seem to be, he had absolutely no reason to shoot at Mr. and Mrs. Long. And even if he did, an expert marksman would struggle to score two clean kills on moving targets at this range. They'd been three quarters of a mile away, 1,200 metres. Captain Drew seemed to be telling the truth about shooting at the birds. That meant there was another possibility. Firing a rifle from the ship meant that the bullet would hit the water at a shallow angle and it stood an excellent chance of ricocheting. But how could that have happened twice? Sergeant Swan needed to investigate. He said, Well, Captain, this is a very serious matter. There have been two persons shot, a man and his wife, on the opposite side of the river at South Grafton. The officer took the rifle and the cartridges into custody and said he'd see the captain later. By October 1919, it had been nearly 30 years since Sherlock Holmes had said, When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. In the morgue, the government medical officer, Dr. Henry, was confronting something that would beg a belief even in an Arthur Conan Doyle novel. The dead husband and wife had been sitting side by side, Harry on the right, in the driver's seat, hands on the reins, and Agnes beside him. When you adjusted for their height, she'd been taller than her husband, and the fact that the sulky had been at an angle, it was clear there had been one trajectory through the two bodies. Captain Drew had fired twice. One bullet had ended up God knows where. The other one had ricocheted off the water 
and gone through Mr. and Mrs. Long. Sergeant Swan came to the morgue to be met with this astonishing news. One bullet, two victims. What he said wasn't recorded. Sergeant Swan went back to the Tintin Bar, which had by then moved to the Sawmill Wharf. It was six o'clock, still hot and muggy. Sergeant Swan asked to speak to the two other men who'd fired the rifle. Captain Drew called them, and the police officer asked them if they'd fired at some birds. They said they had. Which direction, he asked, and they showed him. But they also said they'd taken their shots just before they went to lunch, which was at 1pm. It had been after that that Captain Drew had taken his pot shots. Sergeant Swan placed him under arrest, took him to the lockup in Grafton, and charged him with the felonious slaying of Harry and Agnes Long. Captain Drew replied, Good God, Sergeant, that's an awful charge. I can only say how very sorry I am this thing has happened. Grafton's daily examiner called it a shocking tragedy for which perhaps it would be hard to find a parallel in the long list of shooting fatalities in the state. That sounds to me like an understatement. I'd venture there'd be few cases outside perhaps the battlefield that were as remarkable. One that comes to mind is the Gallipoli crossed bullets, two bullets fused where one had pierced the other. But rifling shows that only one of these had been fired. The other one had been hit, likely in an ammunition dump or similar. Harry and Agnes's funeral was held at Christchurch Cathedral the next day. A cortege of over 50 vehicles went from the church to the Grafton General Cemetery. During the burial service, did Archdeacon Tress quote the biblical verse from Matthew that says of such things? But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That verse would have been more appropriate than ever. It's also very likely that everyone there thought to themselves, what are the chances? The one person who had to be asking that question more than anyone else was Captain Drew. He'd made a terrible mistake, but it hadn't been malicious or even conscious. If he'd pulled the trigger the tiniest fraction of a second earlier or later, or if he'd fired at an angle minutely raised or lowered, or if a butterfly had flapped its wings out over the shallow water, Harry and Agnes Long would be at home with their children, and he wouldn't have their deaths on his soul and be facing his fate. If the Longs had followed their usual routine, or if the sulky had been travelling level on the road, or even if they'd just hit a pebble. If, if, if. But Captain Drew had fired a bullet that, under incredible circumstances, had been as lethal as a hangman's noose and as an assassin's stiletto. If there was any mercy, it was that Harry and Agnes were unlikely to have known much of what happened. Yet Captain Drew had now nothing but time to ponder the imponderable. The inquest was held the same day as the funeral, and witnesses related the basics of what we have heard about the shooting deaths. Sergeant Swan detailed his short investigation. As for whether the accused had been reckless, Sergeant Swan said that the birds had been a quarter of a mile, 400 metres from the ship, and the death scene, near Mr Murphy's house, had been about three quarters of a mile away, 1,200 metres. Given there was a dwelling in sight, the captain should have known better. Sergeant Swan said, quote, I would not have shot with that gun in view of my experience of guns. The bullet would ricochet at that angle. Captain Drew's lawyer, Mr. Lobbin, said it was most regrettable, but clearly it had been an accident. His client wasn't an expert with guns. He'd had no idea such an outcome was possible. So he had not been indifferent to human life. Mr. Lobbin asked the coroner for a verdict of accidental death, but the coroner disagreed. Captain Drew, he said, had feloniously slain Mr. and Mrs. Long. The coroner said he was sympathetic, but nevertheless the accused would stand trial in Grafton in November. Mr. Lobbin applied for bail. It was set at £50, promptly paid, and Captain Drew left. A few weeks later, an in-memoriam appeared in the Daily Examiner. It was placed in the names of the orphaned children, Arthur and Frieda Long, 
and its simple wording made it seem they actually did write it. In loving memory of our dear mother and father, Agnes and Harry Long, who met their death October 14 by a bullet fired from the north side of the Clarence River while peacefully driving home along Ryan Street, South Grafton. We will never forget that sad day, dear mum and dad, waiting for your return. Little did we think when you wished us goodbye, you were leaving us forever and I. But we hope to live in God's grace and dwell with you again on high. In the third week of November 1919 in Sydney, not Grafton as originally stipulated, Captain Sidney Hannaford Drew went to court. The evidence was heard. Captain Drew's barrister asked his honour if he thought a nominal punishment would be applicable. The judge said, in the circumstances, he felt justified in dismissing the case. He believed that Captain Drew had felt genuine remorse, and this had and would continue to be his punishment. Captain Drew was free to go. He'd later become a shipping manager, and he'd pass away in Queensland in August 1938. Dr Earl Page's federal election campaign gathered strength in October and November 1919. He called himself a straight-out country candidate, and he was endorsed by the Farmers and Settlers Association. At the election, on the 13th of December, Dr Page won in a landslide, with 71.6% of the vote under the new two-party preference system. The following month, January 1920, Dr. Page and other farmers formed the Federal Country Party. Their elected members were only one seat short of the balance of power. Dr. Page and his fellow Country Party men sat on the cross benches, and they initially supported Billy Hughes's nationalist government. In April 1921, Dr. Page became leader of the Country Party, and at the October 1922 federal election, the party won 14 seats. Now, they did hold the balance of power. Dr. Page would enter a coalition government with the Nationalists, but only on his terms. And these were remarkable coming from a man who three years ago had been the mayor of South Grafton. Number one, Prime Minister Billy Hughes had to go. Number two, Stanley Bruce was to be Prime Minister. Number three, Dr. Page would be Deputy Prime Minister. Number four, the Country Party would hold five cabinet positions, while the Nationalists would hold six. Dr. Page, who ducked long odds death twice in the space of a year, was now Australia's political power broker. As his entry in the Australian Dictionary of Biography tells us, quote, Page's vision and drive had totally transformed the political strategy of his party. Rather than trying to win piecemeal concessions, it boldly entered government. He was the main architect of the coalition between the Country Party and the urban conservative parties, which remained one of the most durable and influential features of Australian politics for over 60 years. That ADB entry was written in 1988, so you could now change over 60 years to over a century. Dr. Page had made bold choices choices that caused changes and set cogs of chance turning in new ways. Through the 1920s, he won every election with as much as 76.8% of the primary vote. Dr. Page also did very well financially. In addition to building homes in Sydney and being able to provide private school educations for his children, in 1928 he paid £10,000 to buy nearly half of a partnership in Heifer Station. Heifer Station was a beef cattle property about 40 miles northwest of Grafton. £10,000 represented one-seventh of Dr. Page's total assets at this time. But the man had a plan. His oldest son, Earl Jr., had been raised to run things since he was a boy. He'd already jackarooed on various New South Wales stations and he'd gained experience on his father's dairy farms in Queensland. Once he was finished with university, Earl Jr. would oversee the transformation of the 4,000-acre heifer station from a beef to a dairy operation. In the federal election on the 12th of October 1929, Dr. Page ran unopposed. But nationally, the ALP won. James Scullin became Prime Minister, and the Nationalists and the Country Party were out of office. 
Two weeks later, Wall Street crashed and the global Great Depression was on. In the 1931 election, Dr Page won his seat again. Federally, Joe Lyons took outright power for the Nationalists and, as they didn't need the country party, Dr Page would continue to be out of office. In 1932, he bought the rest of Heifer Station. This was a gutsy move, given the economic conditions, and he mortgaged himself to the eyeballs to pull it off. Earl Jr. by now had finished his veterinary science degree at Sydney University. At the age of 22, he began taking over management of Heifer Station. His mum, Ethel, who'd never much liked the country and had lived in Sydney during the 1920s, was now happier to be at the Heifer Station too. Dr. Page, with his reduced political workload, was also there more often. Saturday, the 14th of January, 1933, was hot. Earl Jr. and his younger brother Ivan, who was now 18, were working hard, driving 112 head of cattle from Nettle Creek to the Heifer Station. Dad was home, and Mum was there too. It was dusk, and a storm was rolling in. The Page brothers were still many, many miles from home. They were trying to turn their cattle into a dip yard but they were having a time of it because the beasts were spooked by the thunder. Harry and Agnes Long had been killed by a bullet from a 303 Lee Enfield rifle with a muzzle velocity of 2,678 kilometres an hour, 744 metres a second. The leader of a bolt of lightning, which comprises travelling electrons, moves 80 times faster, about 60 kilometres or 60,000 metres per second. As thick as your thumb, it gives off a temperature of around 30,000 degrees Celsius. Even so, 9 out of 10 people hit by lightning survive. That's because it actually doesn't hit them. It hits the ground near them or some other taller object, like a tree. But there aren't many trees in cleared cattle country. Ivan Page on his horse saw a vivid flash. Whirling around, he saw Earl and his horse both falling to the ground. As the Daily Examiner reported, quote, He rushed to the spot and on reaching his brother's side saw that Earl and his horse had apparently been killed. Hoping he was wrong, that something could be done, Ivan carried his brother to a shed out of the elements and then jumped on his horse and galloped miles for help. The property manager of a station drove him back to the site in a car and they took Earl to a doctor's surgery in Cotmanhurst. But Dr. Page's oldest son was dead. With the phones out on account of the storm, the station manager had to send a rider to Heifer Station to break the terrible news to Mr. and Mrs. Page. Brisbane's The Telegraph newspaper reported, Although in the last few days there have been 10 persons struck by lightning in Queensland and New South Wales, only one, Dr. Earl Page's son, was killed. At the funeral at the Grafton Methodist Church, the Reverend W.C. Fullerton spoke of the popular, intelligent young man who'd seemed to have the whole world ahead of him. Yet the Reverend saw the divine spark in the lightning bolt. As the Daily Examiner reported, quote, His father had cherished plans for the future of his eldest son, but the Heavenly Father had shown that he had other plans and the Almighty never makes a mistake, and he had called the young man to a higher sphere. Dr. and Mrs. Page endured enormous grief. Much of Australia mourned with them. The family received 700 letters and telegrams in the first few days after the tragedy. These condolences sent by the Governor-General and the Prime Minister on down. Australia, the newspapers said, would feel the effects of this tragedy for many years to come. The Daily Telegraph in Sydney, quote, Few men have sacrificed as much for their country as Dr. Earl Page. At a time when he could have made very large sums by the exercise of his amazing skill as a surgeon, he devoted himself very largely to politics. And now a stroke of fate has struck down the son who had been trained to take charge of his land interests and on the work of closer settlement and development he was putting in hand in his native region, the Valley of Clarence River. Out of the six million inhabitants of the Commonwealth, the lightning stroke sought out the one trained to do this work. The farmer and settler newspaper said, quote, 
the lightning bolt that robbed Dr. Earl Page of his eldest son so tragically a few days ago is likely to have a serious influence upon Australian politics. Deeply affected by the bereavement, Dr. Page has indicated his intention to retire from the leadership of the country party. Dr. Page's energy in campaigning during the 1920s had seen numerous headlines about his lightning tour of this or that place. The phrase was now bitterly ironic. So was his cherished dream. As the Maitland Daily Mercury couldn't help but observe, quote, All his life, Dr. Page has been an ardent advocate of the development of electrical power in the country. And by the irony of fate, it was a bolt of electricity from the heavens which robbed him of his eldest son. Dr. Page would take a nine-month leave of absence before returning to politics. In 1934, when the country party again won the balance of power, he'd be Joe Lyons' unofficial deputy prime minister and his commerce minister. When Joe Lyons died in office in April 1939, Dr. Page would be caretaker prime minister for 17 days, agitating for Stanley Bruce to return as leader and making a career mistake when he viciously denounced Robert Menzies for cowardice in the Great War. This time, fortune did not favour the bold Dr. Page. Menzies took power, the country party was cut out of the cabinet, and Dr. Page lost the party leadership, which he'd never get back. Dr. Page and Prime Minister Menzies did make amends, enough at least for Dr. Page to return to the Commerce Ministry in 1940. Following that, for the next 20 years, Dr. Page would have a long and successful political life. Deep into his 70s, he was on the backbench and devoting his time to his twin dreams, the hydroelectric scheme for the Clarence River and a separate state for the Northern Rivers. Dr. Page finally lost the seat that he'd held for 42 years when the federal election was held on the 9th of December 1961. But Dr. Page had been diagnosed with lung cancer that year and had campaigned while he was dying. He passed away on the 20th of December, and like some sort of thought experiment, this was before the election results were known. So he'd simultaneously lost and not lost. Dr. Earl Page was cremated, and per his request, his ashes were scattered on the Clarence River. Earl Page Jr.'s grave marker can be found in Grafton General Cemetery, though it's cracked and worse for wear. In the same cemetery, you can see the white marble tombstone that marks Harry and Agnes Long's resting place. It, too, has seen better days, slowly succumbing to moss. The headstone is inscribed in loving memory, but it lists only their names, ages and marital status, without making comment about how husband and wife both died 14th October 1919. Could such a thing happen again? Could a rifle bullet ever again ricochet over a range of 200 metres to hit two people in a moving vehicle so precisely that it kills them both more or less instantly? Of course, it could happen again. After all, it did happen. But what are the chances? I have no idea. But I reckon if you take Henry's death date as a number, 14101919, or 14,101,919 and square it by multiplying Agnes's number, then the massive resulting number, many, many trillions to one, might put you in the ballpark. My name is Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. I'll be back with another new episode as soon as possible. In the meantime, if you'd like to support Forgotten Australia, you can do so via Apple and Patreon. Links are in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting.